This week's Parsha podcast is dedicated in honor of the new Torch Rabbi, Rabbi Chaim Busto. We are honored to have him as part of our team here in Houston, Texas, helping us in our mission of connecting Jews and Judaism. We wish him tremendous success in his outreach and educational efforts together with us. And we hope this is a wonderful relationship that flourishes. Thank you, Rabbi Busto, for coming on board. Parsha's Bechukosai, the last parsha in the book of Leviticus, has 78 verses and 12 mitzvahs, and it's only two chapters. And it's a very different chapters. The first chapter is one of the two places in the Torah where we have admonition, we have rebuke. And the way it's structured is, is very simple, very clear. If then, if you obey the Torah, if you obey the mitzvahs, if you follow God, Fantastic things will happen to you. You'll be blessed. You'll have prosperity. Everything will be fantastic. However, in the unfortunate event where you choose to disobey the will of God, where you choose to abandon Torah, then a series of terrible, terrible things will happen to you. And it describes in in gruesome and gory and macabre detail all the terrible things that will happen to us. This appears in uh, our chapter, chapter 26 of Leviticus, and one more time, uh, a more expanded version of this same theme is told to us in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28. And the second chapter of the Parsha, which is chapter 27, the final part, the final chapter in the book of Leviticus, details certain laws related to offerings, donations to the temple, seemingly a very different theme from the first half of the Parsha to the second half of the Parsha. Now, before we begin to study the Parsha and the blessings of the curses, it is interesting to note that the curses, the consequence of disobeying God, are much more comprehensive than the blessings if we do obey the will of God. And perhaps we could say that, you know, the objective of these blessings and curses are both the same. They're not there to intimidate us. They're not there to frighten us. They're there to inspire us. They're there to show us what we really have to choose when we choose one option or the other. And therefore, the question is, which one of those two is more motivational? And today, we know via science that people are more motivated to protect what they have, to not lose the fear of of loss, of what you could potentially lose, is much more motivating than what you could potentially gain. And therefore, the Torah structures it in a way that it gives us 10 verses of blessings followed by 45 curses that gets sequentially worse and worse as we continue to disobey the will of God. So the Parsha begins, If you will follow my decrees and observe my commandments and perform them, then I will provide you rain in their time, and the land will give its produce, and the trees of the field will give its fruit. Your threshing will last until the vintage, the vintage will last until the sowing, you will eat your bread to to satiation, you will dwell securely in the land. If you obey the decrees, fantastic things will happen to you. Now, Rashi points out a very famous comment here that if you read the very first verse, if you follow my decrees and observe my commandments, so what's the difference between following God's decrees and obeying, observing his commandments? If it's talking about commandments, well, then it's already covered if you observe my commandments. So what is meant by the beginning of the parasha, if you will follow my decrees, im bechukosai telechum? So Rashi tells us that this refers not to obeying the mitzvos, but for toiling in Torah. Thus, when the parsha begins, if you follow my decrees and observe my commandments, the decrees are toiling in study of Torah, and the commandments refer to the commandments them- themselves. And also on the flip side, in, in verse 14, where it starts talking about the curses, if you disobey my decrees, if you disobey my commandments, again, Rashi tells us that it refers to both the mitzvos and to toiling in Torah. Now, it's interesting that Rashi presents toiling in Torah as the key to unlocking all these tremendous blessings. And there's been tremendous amount of commentary in this line in Rashi. I want to maybe suggest an understanding as to why toiling in Torah is the key here to get these blessings. Perhaps we can suggest a approach based upon a teaching in the Rambam. The Rambam is dealing with a problem. The problem is that the Torah tells us that we have to love God. The problem is that we have a hard time even understanding what God is. It's a concept that's beyond human understanding to fully understand what it means God. And therefore, if we have a hard time understanding God, how can we possibly try to love him? And the Ram gives an answer. He says that the Almighty's Torah is the proxy 
through which we can connect to him. Just like the Almighty is infinite, so too the Torah is infinite. But the difference is that accessing the Torah is feasible, whereas accessing God directly, it's a little bit more difficult. And therefore, the way that we connect to God, the way that we love God is via his Torah and specifically via tapping into the Torah's infinity, so to speak, the fact that it's infinite. Like we've said before, that the Torah is compared to water. If you walk into the Pacific Ocean, you're like, hey, I can walk to Japan. But as you go deeper and deeper into the ocean, you realize how deep it really is. Similarly, with Torah, the more you study it, the more you immerse yourself into it, the more you plumb its depths, the more you realize how deep it really is. And therefore, specifically with toiling in Torah, not just understanding Torah on a superficial, rudimentary level, but trying to go as deep as you can, that is the way that you connect to God, and that connection is what spurs all these tremendous blessings. Deep learning is a segue to developing a relationship with God. And we have a reward. The reward is if we connect to God, if we do his commandments and we study his Torah in a deep way, he'll give us rain in their time. Rashi tells us that what does it mean in their time? In a time that's not harmful. You know, when when it's raining, it's great for the fields, but it makes the roads muddy and it causes other hassles. But if it rains overnight, when everyone's sleeping anyhow, well, then it's Great rain, but it's also in its time. In addition, Rashi tells us that this is also a supernatural blessing that even non-fruit trees will bear fruit. And we'll have security. I will provide peace in the land. You will lie down and none will frighten you. I will cause wild beasts to withdraw from the land and a sword will not cross your land. And Rashi tells us here a few things. First of all, that not only will we have bread to satiation, but even a small amount of of bread will go a long way. That the spiritual component of food, the fact that food provides satiation, will, will kick in and with a little bit of food, we'll have a lot of satiation. Moreover, we'll have peace. And if you read the verses critically, you'll notice there's two different kinds of peace. You'll dwell securely in your land. And that's verse five. And verse six, I'll provide peace in the land. And Rashi tells us that peace is everything. If you, have, if you don't have peace, you have nothing. And the two kinds of peace, the commentaries explain, is that there's there's different kinds of peace. There's one peace where you don't have foreign enemies, foreign adversaries that are infiltrating your land. And a second peace is internally, within the land itself, there will be harmony, there will be unity, there will be love and kinship amongst your fellow compatriots. And then we read that when we do have enemies, we'll destroy them. You will pursue your enemies they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will pursue a hundred, and a hundred of you will pursue ten thousand. If you have only five Jewish soldiers, you'll be able to swamp a hundred enemies. If you have a hundred Jewish soldiers, you'll pursue ten thousand. Rashi tells us that the Torah has an exponential impact. Five people studying Torah is able to overcome a hundred enemies. A hundred people studying Torah, it has a much bigger impact. I will turn my attention to you, I will make you fruitful and increase you, and I will establish my covenant with you. You'll stand erect, you'll stand proud, you'll have gravitas, you'll have stature, you'll have pride, things will be wonderful. You will eat very old grain and remove the old uh, to make way for the new, your storehouses will be full, your granaries will be full, your fruits won't deteriorate. I will place my sanctuary amongst you. You'll have the presence of God amongst you. So you'll have really everything. You'll have a flourishing physical, economic existence. You'll have a flourishing spiritual existence. My spirit won't reject you, God promises. I will walk among you. I will be a God unto you, and you will be a people unto me. I am a shepherd God unto you, God of the land of Egypt. From being their slaves, I brought the staves of your yoke, and I led you erect. God promises he won't expel us. He won't expunge us. He won't get rid of us. The Ramban here in verse 11 gives us a very interesting Kabbalistic idea by saying that the Jewish people are consumed by holiness. We're consumed by God. We're almost we're like, like we're enveloped by God and therefore we won't be expelled from that holiness. God's going to walk amongst us. Rashi says that this refers to us having strolls with God in paradise We won't be shaking up. We won't be trembling before him. We'll still have reverence for him. 
but we won't be paranoid spiritually. We'll have a seriousness with our relationship with God. We'll be close to him. He'll be close to us. And things will be wonderful. So this is the beginning of the parasha. And if this is all you read, it sounds like an absolute uh, delight of a reading. If we obey the will of God, we study his Torah, we toil in his Torah, all manners of blessings will befall us. Now, it is interesting that if you look at the blessings in general, it describes, you know, rain in their time and we'll be able to overcome our enemies. It describes a very good life, but it doesn't describe absolute abundant wealth. It doesn't describe, you know, being over the top wealthy. Things will be good. You'll have rain in the time. You'll, you'll have prosperity. You'll have food. You'll have your needs covered, but it doesn't describe tremendous wealth, tremendous riches. And the Rambam explains that there's a difference between facilitatory and ultimate reward. What the Torah is describing here is not the ultimate reward for us obeying the mitzvos and toiling in Torah. Of course, that is the venue for that is in Olam Abba. We believe that after you die, you go to the world of souls. Eventually, you end up in the next world, and that's the world in which reward and punishment, ultimate reward and punishment, are meted out. In this world, we don't have reward for mitzvos. And to a certain extent, we don't have punishment for sins. And therefore, when it's describing here that things will be good for us here, we'll have rain, we'll have prosperity, we'll have security, we'll have hegemony, that is not reward for our mitzvos. Instead, says the Rambam, that is God saying, if you commit to do the will of God, I will facilitate that. I will enable that. I'll make sure that you don't have any hunger and any, any other existential threats. You'll be taken care of so you can focus on your spiritual agenda. Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, he gave an example. He says, you know, if you're traveling on a highway, every year we travel to Canada, we drive to Canada from Houston. And of course, the biggest problem is finding kosher food along the way because the vast heartland of America is almost entirely bereft of kosher restaurants. That's a problem that we do have. A problem that we don't have is finding gas. You don't have to plan your route along, you know, if you're driving one of those fancy electric cars, you have to plan your route where there's, you know, charging stations from your point of origin to your destination. But if you're driving a regular car, you need gas, there's gas every two minutes along the highways. However, when you're traveling off-road, if you're going on, you know, the boondocks, if you're traveling through the desert on a dirt road, you're probably not going to have any gas stations. And the reason is, if you're traveling to Olamaba, if you're going to your destination, the money says, you know what, if you're going along the right path, I'm going to provide you with the necessary fuel for your journey. Whereas if you go off path, you're not heading towards your destination, you're not heading to Olamaba, then you might be on your own. You won't even have fuel for that journey. So this is kind of fuel for the journey. Ultimate reward is in Olamaba, but God says, okay, I'm going to give you enough to ensure that when you're along this path, when you're along the journey, you're not going to suffer. You'll have your needs met. Uh, an alternative answer, perhaps, is that like the parsha begins, if you toil in Torah, then you'll have you'll have your needs met. So it's been suggested that this series of blessings and curses refers to specifically Torah scholars, whereas in chapter twenty-eight of Deuteronomy, where we have the second example of the admonition and rebuke, that's referring to the Jewish nation at large. And there it says, for example, in 28.12 of Deuteronomy, you will loan many nations and you won't need a loan. You'll have so much capital. You have so much money, you're able to lend everyone without needing to borrow on your own. So that's describing great wealth. And the difference is that over there, it's talking to, it's talking to the nation in general. The nation in general has to have great wealth. But for the Torah scholars... As long as they have their needs met, then they could focus on what's really important, and that is the spiritual agenda. So those are two answers as to why the description of the physical wealth that we will get via our mitzvahs and via our toil and Torah, it's pretty lackluster, it's pretty, pretty humdrum, it's pretty basic, because after all, this is not the place of reward, this is just facilitatory. Now the Ramban here in verse 12 asks a different question. How come the Torah does not mention the ultimate reward that we get in Olam Abba? After all, 
isn't that the bargain? You do mitzvos, you study Torah, you toil in Torah, and the money says, okay, I'll give you a reward in Olam Abba. And in fact, throughout the whole Torah, the concept of the afterlife, the concept of post-mortem reward and punishment is only hinted at overtly. It's never mentioned explicitly. Maybe should have said over here, if you do the mitzvos, you bait, you bait God, you follow his statutes, you walk in his decrees, then after you die and after your soul goes to heaven, it will be rewarded in a fantastic way. Why is there no mention for Olamaba? So Rabban gives two answers. First one is a very powerful idea. He says, it's not necessary to even say that. Everyone knows that. He explains that when the Torah talks about sinners who get their souls cut off, you can imply from that that non-sinners don't get their souls cut off and therefore their souls do live on for eternity. Ergo, it's so simple to know that we have eternal life in Olam Abba. After we die, the Torah doesn't even need to mention it. That's his first answer. His second answer is that this is more of a Kabbalistic idea, that if you read the first 10 verses of our Parsha, you should know that it's really talking about Olam Abba. It's describing rain, it's describing satiation, it's describing overcoming your enemies. But if you read it properly and you know the secrets and you know how to read it in a Kabbalistic manner, it's really referring to paradise and Olam Abba. So I guess we have to study the Kabbalistic interpretations to really understand what he's referring to. But the Ramban actually says in a second answer that really if you read the blessings, it is indeed referring to Olam Abba. Okay, so those are the blessings that the Parsha begins with. And then verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not perform all of these commandments, if you consider my decrees loathsome, and if you reject my ordinances, you don't perform my commandments, you annul my covenant, then I will do the same to you. And it starts to describe a series of terrible consequences that happened to the Jewish people in the event that they disobeyed God, they repudiated his Torah, and they distanced themselves from him. I will assign upon you panic, swelling lesions, burning fever, which will cause your eyes to long and your souls to suffer. You will sow your seeds in vain, for your enemies will eat them. I will turn my attention to you. I'll focus on you. You'll be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will subjugate you, and you will flee with no one pursuing you. So this is just the very, just the very beginning here. And I think before we get into the specifics, it's important to understand that these curses – this rebuke, this admonition, there's an objective to it. It's not just punishment. The objective is course correction. You know, we go off the rails. We go off course. The Almighty says, okay, I'm going to nudge you back onto the correct path. The Talmud tells us, the book of Brachos, page 5a, if someone sees that they're suffering, then they should examine their deeds. If you're suffering in one area, examine your deeds. See if there's something that you're doing or something that you're not doing that is the cause for you to get the suffering. And what we can learn from that is that the Almighty employs suffering as a means to nudge us back to the correct path. I'm very fond of a, of an, of a parable of the guy who was working on the Empire State Building on the 80th floor. And he went out for a cigarette break onto the balcony and it was late in the day and the office was empty and he got, he got stuck on the balcony and the door was locked and his phone was inside. So he was stuck and had no way to be saved unless someone opened the door from the inside. So he realized that his only solution was to call out to the passerby on the street below and have them, you know, to get their attention. And maybe they'll come and save him. So he starts hollering from a thousand feet away to the passerby. But of course, no one hears him. So he comes up with a different solution. He takes his wallet and starts throwing coins onto the people below. And he figures, well, when good things happen to them, they'll look up and figure out who's giving them the coins and he'll be saved. But the people just scoop up the coins and they start walking away. So he says, ah. It's not enough to throw coins. I got to throw dollar bills. So you start throwing dollar bills and eventually throwing fives and tens and fifties and hundreds. And everyone is just stooping up the money and walking away, never for a second looking up to see who is their benefactor. So with no choice, he walks over to the corner and takes the potted plant 
and grabs a fistful of pebbles and starts to rain them down on the people below. And when people started being pelted with pebbles, they say, hey, what's that about? And they look up and they see him and he gets saved. That's the parable. And the idea being is that the Almighty put us on this world to have a connection with us. He wants to have a connection with us. And he showers us with love. And like the Talmud tells us, every time we breathe, it's a gift from God. And we just take it all for granted. We feel entitled. We don't look up and thank him. And the mind says, no, 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 I got to get their attention. It's very important. It's imperative that I get their attention. So every once in a while, he goes over to the potted plant and he starts throwing curveballs at us. And people tend to say, hey, why did God do that to me when bad things happen to them instead of when good things happen to them? And ergo, the connection will happen one way or the other. Either we choose voluntarily when things are good to thank God, or he has no choice, so to speak, but to make things a little bit bad for us. And then indeed, we will ask, why did he do it for us? And the connection between us and the Almighty will be restored. And there's another point here. Rashi tells us in verse 14, if you read the, if you read the verse, it says, but if you will not listen to me, and will not perform all of these commandments, Rashi tells us that we have to perform all the commandments. And I think that the insight here is that the mitzvos, they're really a package deal. Of course, for some people who don't have a background in, in Jewish learning and Jewish observance, the notion of doing all the mitzvos at once is very difficult. But the theory behind it is that we believe the Torah is divine. The Torah comes from the Almighty. And the second you believe that one thing, the Torah is divine, and of course we have abundant evidence to that effect, the second you believe the Torah is divine, then how could you reject any part of it? It means once you believe that one insight, if the Torah is divine, well, then everything in it is divine. The second you say, you know what, this mitzvah really resonates, I'm going to do this one. The other one, mm, not so much. That, even though you're saying you're rejecting only one mitzvah, you may think so, the truth is, you're rejecting the whole thing because that attitude is only possible if someone believes that the Torah is not divine. If the Torah is not divine, well, then you say which ones are modern, which ones resonate with our society, which ones are not too difficult for me, and those you'll obey. And therefore, it's better for someone to say, listen, the Torah is all divine, and I have to really do all the mitzvahs, and right now, it's very difficult for me. I'm going to be a sinner. It's better to be a sinner than to be someone who rejects the entirety of Torah wholesale by saying this one is not real, this one's not legit, and therefore I'm not a sinner. Because by doing that, you're really a sinner in all arenas because you're rejecting the entirety of Torah. Now, Rashi develops a theme here that there's seven sins in this admonition. Each one of them leads to the next one, and therefore all the consequences of those seven sins are also seven punishments. So Rashi tells us the first sin is when someone doesn't get dedicate themselves to Torah study. Eventually, that leads to them not performing mitzvos. Eventually, they become disgusted and revolted by people who are loyal to Torah. They hate the sages that teach the mitzvos. They start preventing others from performing the mitzvos. Then they begin to deny the divinity of the commandments. And eventually, they deny the existence of God. These are the seven sins that are described here at the beginning of the admonition. And as a result of those seven sins, there are seven consequences. And again, not punishments, but ways of God getting our attention and hopefully encouraging us to rectify our ways. Now, I think it's important to acknowledge that if we have a certain grasp on Jewish history – we'll find a lot of these descriptions of the terrible events described in the Torah, we'll find them to be spine-chillingly accurate because these are events that have happened to our nation. There's a very long Ramban here who elaborates how the admonition, the rebuke over here, that refers to the events that coincided with the destruction of the first temple. And the one in Deuteronomy the, the description of the terrible things that befell to the Jewish people in chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, that actually played out in the era of the destruction of the second temple. 
So here we have the first series of seven punishments, swelling lesions, burning fever, frustrated longing. We're going to sow seeds that will produce crops for the enemies. Rashi brings two interpretations. Is that is that with respect to produce or is that with respect to children? We're going to be struck down by the enemy. We're going to be subjugated by the enemy and we're going to flee with no one in pursuit. And it's interesting that this is a worse curse to be running away from a non-existent threat. That's worse than running away from a, pursu- a pursuer. And the going of Vilna used to say, quoting a verse in Ecclesiastes, that the Almighty defends someone who is fleeing from a pursuer. Even if the pursuer is righteous, the Almighty will defend the victim. And therefore, when it tells us over here that we're going to be fleeing, but there really isn't a pursuer, that's going to tell us that we're not going to have the protection of God. He's not going to defend us because there is, after all, no pursuer. Well, if all these terrible things happen to us, then we don't listen. Verse 18, if despite this, you don't heed me, then I shall punish you further. Seven ways for your sin. The temples will be destroyed. The heaven will be like iron, no rain. The earth will be like copper, no produce. You will extend your strength in vain. The earth will not yield crops. The trees will not yield fruit. And even the fruit that it does yield will drop off the tree before maturity. And in verse 20, we read again the the agony of this punishment. Your strength will be spent in vain. Your land will not give its produce. You're going to work hard in the land. Rashi tells us, you know, you have someone who doesn't plow, doesn't sow, doesn't weed, doesn't clear away the thorns, doesn't hoe. And then what happens? When it's time for the harvest, a blight comes and destroys all the crops. But after all, he didn't work on the crops, so it doesn't, it's not so painful. But what happens when someone does plow and does sow? And does weed, and every day is sweating and toiling on the field, clearing away the, thor- the thorns, hoeing yet. And after, when it's time to finally reap the harvest, a blight comes and, des- and destroys it. There's no more pain than that. The agony of a futility is just miserable. And that's what God's promising. If we don't return to Him, that's what He's going to do to us. And then we have the third series, verse 21. If you behave casually with me, you refuse to heed me. You don't take the lesson home. I shall lay a further blow upon you seven ways like your sin. Again, if we treat God with casualness, with randomness, we don't take the lesson to heart. We have apathy. We have complacency. Rashi adds that we do mitzvot sometimes when when it's convenient for us. We don't take the lesson home. There's a famous uh, Rambam in the beginning of the Laws of Fast Days where he tells us, that when bad things happen to us, it's a mitzvah from the Torah to pull out the trumpets and to scream out and to make announcements for this suffering to recognize what happened to us and to try to rectify the ways. And these are the ways of repentance, he tells us, when bad things happen to us, to cry out, to weep, because we recognize that it is our actions, our bad actions, that caused that to happen to us. And the hope is that when we recognize that bad things happen to us because of our relationship with God and we rectify our ways, then the symptom of that problem will go away too. But if we don't listen, we are promised here in Leviticus 26 a third series of consequences. Wild beasts will reign upon us. Even domestic animals will die. We'll have to deal with venomous snakes. God forbid the children will die, the livestock will die, the population will shrink, the roads will be desolate. If despite this, we don't listen, again, we're going to have seven ways, seven consequences for our sin. The sword of the foreign invaders will happen. We'll have siege. The people will be forced into the cities. There'll be plagues. There'll be food shortages, lack of fuel. We'll have bread that crumbles. We'll have constant hunger, just terrible descriptions of all the terrible things that will happen to us. And indeed, as we know throughout our history, these things did happen to us when we did abandon God. If despite this, you will not heed me, the fifth series of punishments, if we behave towards God with casualness, he too will respond to us with a fury of casualness. He will chastise us 
seven ways for our sins, and it describes, again, very, very difficult to read it, but uh, cannibalism, parents eating the flesh of their of their children, there'll be such delirium amongst the populace, they'll consume the flesh of their own children, and we know, of course, throughout history this did happen. Our defenses will crumble, people will die, the Almighty's presence will depart from us, the cities will be destroyed, our land will be desolate, God will refuse to accept our offerings. There's a haunting story in the Talmud, in the book of Sanhedrin, where it describes, again, in verse 30, I will cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols. The Almighty is promising, if you have idolatry, if you disobey God, not only is your idol a carcass, it has no life, it has no vitality, but your carcass will fall upon the carcass of your idols. It tells a terrible story about Elijah. Elijah was walking through the destroyed cities of Judea and Jerusalem, and he finds a small child who was bloated with hunger and sitting in squalor. And he tried to get him to say Shema, to say the Shema, say, say the declaration of God. And right away, the kid pulls out an idol from his pocket and hugs it and kisses it until he dies. And the corpse of this child collapses on the idol, and that was a fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate personification of God promising, I will cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols. And indeed, when the Jewish people did immerse themselves in idolatry, these these promises were indeed fulfilled. But there is a little bit of a consolation here. I will make the land desolate. Rashi tells us that this is a little bit of a comfort for us because not only will we not be secure in the land, but the Gentiles won't flourish in it either. And I think it's a very powerful idea to read today. You know, we know we have thousands of years of history to look back upon. And the one land, the one country, the one region that has had the most turnover more than any other place, the most disputed piece of real estate in the world is, of course, the land of Israel. And this is the reason why, because it's really reserved for us. But when we disobey God, we're bounced out of the land. And the land becomes desolate because even the people that move in, even the new inhabitants of the land, they themselves don't really find themselves so secure in the land. And then in verse 34, we circle back to the concept of Shemitah that we read about last week. Then, says the Torah, the land will be appeased for its its sabbaticals during all the years of its desolation. Rashi makes an amazing calculation that there were 70 years that the Jewish people did not obey the laws of Shemitah, and therefore the exile, the Babylonian exile, when the Jewish people were kicked out of the land of Israel, it lasted for 70 years, the land was desolate, the land lay fallow to make up for the 70 years of Shemitah that the Jewish people disobeyed. And then it continues, again, very difficult to read, very painful, but very accurate when you look back at, at Jewish history. The survivors amongst you will bring weakness into their hearts in the land of their foes. Uh, the sound of a rustling leaf will pursue them. They'll be terrified. They will flee as one flees the sword, and they will fall, but without a pursuer. They will stumble over one another as in flight from the sword, but there is no pursuer, and you will not have the power to withstand your enemies. You will become lost amongst the nations, and the land of your foes will devour you because of their iniquity, your remnant will disintegrate in the land of your foes, and because of the iniquities of your forefathers that are with them, they too will disintegrate. Very, again, very difficult to read, but again, something that we look back now over the course of history and find that indeed was fulfilled, uh, sadly. In verse 37 here, very important Rashi, you will stumble over each other in flight, from the sword. So the Jewish people are going to be stumbling over each other and they're going to kind of injure each other because of the stampede away from the non-existent pursuer. But there's an interesting Rashi here. Rashi quotes the Midrash. The Midrash says that you will stumble over each other, each one of you, 
will suffer from the sins of your fellow. And this is an idea we find throughout the Torah that the Jewish people are aravim zelazel. We are guarantors for one another. When someone, another Jew, does a sin, a sliver of that sin is given to every other Jew. Because we believe that really the Jewish nation is really one soul. We are really the soul of Adam. And therefore, there's interdependence and communal responsibility. And if we don't make sure that not only we are behaving properly, but our friends are, then we're going to be tripping over each other. Even if you are okay in a stampede, it doesn't matter that you're safe because you could be, you could be smothered by others. And then we finally are creeping out of this terrible description of, of what's going to happen to us. Then they will confess their sins. So then the Jewish people are going to get the message. They're going to confess. And the sin of the forefathers for the treachery with which they betrayed me and also for having behaved towards me with casualness, I too will behave with them to, towards them with casualness. The confession is not so sincere. It's not complete. And therefore God says, you still have casualness. And I'll bring them into the land of their enemies. Perhaps then their unfeeling heart will be humbled and then they will gain appeasement for their sin. I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham I remember and I will remember the land. Even though their confession will not be complete, the Almighty says, okay, they're, they're going to confess and they're going to repent a little bit. I'm going to add the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I'll remember the land. And the land will be appeased after having been desolate. And despite all of this, in verse 44, this is the, the, the grand consolation. While they will be in the land of their enemies, I will not have been revolted by them, nor will I reject them, nor will I obliterate them. I won't annul my covenant with them, for I am Hashem, their God. I will remember for them the covenant of their ancestors those who I, whom I have taken out of the land of Egypt, for the eyes of the nation, to be God unto them, I am Hashem. This is a very valuable consolation that even though the Almighty is going to punish us, and even though we have all these consequences in the land of our enemies, the holiness that's within us is never going to be extinguished, and therefore God will never completely abandon us. Now, it is interesting, when God remembers the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, first of all, lists them backwards, Jacob, then Isaac, and then Abraham. And second of all, it says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Abraham, whereas by Isaac, there's no reference to any remembrance. It doesn't say, I will remember my covenant with Isaac. So those two questions uh, Rashi asks, why does it start from Jacob? So he says, why does it count backwards, so to speak? Even if it was only because of Jacob, he would be enough to help propel the Jewish people out of their depths of despair. And God, if God had only made a covenant with Jacob, that would be enough. Why does it not mention remembrance by Isaac? So Rashi says something very powerful. Rashi says, Isaac, he was the one who voluntarily offered to die for God. And therefore, that mitzvah, that act of martyrdom, of self-sacrifice of of Isaac, there's no need to remember it. It's as if the ashes of Isaac's burned body are piled up in front of me, says God, so to speak, and I don't need to remember it. It's always there. When someone does an act of self-sacrifice, that mitzvah, so to speak, it engenders eternal merits, not only for them, but for their children. And it's almost as if it's always present before God. There's no need for God to invoke that. There's no need for God to remember that. It's always there. Very powerful idea. The chapter concludes, these are the decrees and the ordinances and the teachings that Hashem gave between himself and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai via Moses. And I think, you know, this chapter, looking back, it's a very difficult and painful chapter to read. But I think the overarching message is that we need to take to heart when bad things happen to us. Maybe God's sending us a message, number one. Number two, I think there is a heartening component to it, the realization that 
what God is saying is that he wants a connection with us. By hook or by crook, either we obey his Torah, either we toil in his Torah, we obey his mitzvot, and then it's a positive connection, or we disobey, and then there's still a connection, but the connection is one of consequences, one of punishment. And that, of course, is something we don't we don't want. But if you look at the grand retrospective of of Jewish history, it turns out that we're still around. And if we didn't have that connection by hook or by crook in any scenario, then we probably would not have survived all the upheavals of our history. Uh, the great anomaly of of world history is the fact that Jewish people, despite all hell that we have endured all the expulsions and all the inquisitions and all the blood libels and all the exiles, despite all of that, we're still around. And this really is the secret. This is the key to our survival, the fact that God insists that we survive, that God insists that we have a connection with him. And while it's painful to have the connection in the event that we don't obey the laws, it's still preferable than us not existing entirely. Chapter 27 deals with various gifts to the temple, various donations, various sanctifications. And it begins, if someone pledges, makes a vow to donate to the temple coffers, the value of a person. So if I say, okay, the value of this person, I'm going to donate. So how valuable is that person? So the verse breaks it down to men and women and in various stages of their life, are they infants, are they young people, are they uh, mature people, are they old people? And each one of them has a different value. And if someone is too poor, then the priest will evaluate how much they could pay via his disposable income, and that's what you could pay. Very interesting law. When someone makes a pledge, a donation to the coffers of the temple, I want to give the value of this person that would find out what category they fit in. Are they a man, are they a man or a woman, male or female? Are they an infant? Are they a small child? Are they a young person? Are they a mature person? Are they an old person? Each one has a different valuation, how many silver coins that the person has to pay. Now, the juxtaposition of the admonition and pledging the value of of people is a very unusual connection. It doesn't seem to be connected at all. The Baal HaTurim says something fascinating. He says, if you count the amount of silver coins... In each one of these groups, again, we said it's five different groups and male and female. So, for example, the valuation of a man between 20 and 60 is 50 silver coins. If it's a female, it's 30 silver coins. What if it's someone between the age of 5 and 20? Then a male is 20 coins and a female is 10 coins. If it's from the age of one month to five years, a male is five silver coins, a female is three silver coins. If it's above the age of 60, then it's a male is 15 coins and a female is 10 coins. So says the Balatum, if you count the amount of coins all told, it's 143 silver coins. And then he tells us, if you count the amount of curses in the previous chapter, you have 45 curses. And in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, the second time the Torah gives curses, it's 98 different curses. What's 98 plus 45? The total is 143. And therefore, you have 143 coins that parallels the 143 curses. And he explains that the donations to the temple, i.e. charity to Torah causes, to causes for the Jewish people, those are the ways to rectify the underlying causes for the 143 curses. The Kliyakar, one of the commentaries on the Torah, he explains a very deep point. He explains that when someone makes a pledge, sometimes you're someone's in a dire straits, they're in danger, and they say, you know what? If God saves me, I'm going to give a donation to charity, to, to, to Torah causes, to the temple, whatever it may be. And then things improve there's a tendency for us to forget what we promised and maybe not pay those pledges. Things aren't so bad anymore, you kind of forget about how bad things were. And therefore, immediately after the terrible events of of the last chapter are concluded, now things are okay, it reminds us, don't forget the donation that you pledged, don't forget to give it to charity.
And then it talks about if someone pledges to give an animal towards the coffers, then the animal becomes sanctified. And in the event that the person wants to buy it back, they have to add a fifth. So if he redeems, he must add a fifth to the valuation. So someone donates a cow to the temple and they say, you know what? I really miss Betsy. I want to have her back. You have to pay the value of the cow plus a fifth. However, Rashi tells us that if the owner wants to redeem it, then they pay a fifth. If someone else, a random person wants to buy that animal from the coffers of the temple, they don't need to add a fifth. They could just buy it at fair market value. And the obvious question is, is shouldn't it be the opposite? After all, the owner, they themselves, with the magnanimity of their heart, they got up and they decided to donate their animal to the temple. So shouldn't we make it easier for them to redeem it? Why do we make it harder for them? They have to add a fifth. No one else needs to add a fifth when they want to buy livestock back from the temple coffers. So Rabbi Rucham answers, very powerful idea. The Midrash tells us that it's much worse to start a mitzvah and not finish it than to not start the mitzvah at all. And the Midrash couches this in very scary terms. Someone who starts a mitzvah but doesn't finish it ends up burying his wife and children. Meaning, just like if someone starts a mitzvah and doesn't finish it, someone will start have a family but not finish it, not have the ability to finish it. Very, very scary. And therefore, same thing over here. You know, someone gets inspired to give a donation to the temple and then they start regretting it. They're in very dangerous territory. They began their ascent. They began to make themselves holier. They decided to accept upon themselves something and now they're having second thoughts about it. And therefore, specifically that person, we asked, okay, you want to buy it back? You have to give a fifth. You have to make sure that your magnanimity does not go in vain. You have to add a fifth towards the coffers of the temple. And then we read about if someone pledges to give their home to Hashem to the coffers of the temple, how they redeem it. If someone wants to give their field and depends, was the field sanctified by someone else or by the original owner, the original ancestral owner, that determines whether or not it goes back to the original owner by the Yovel year. We read about the firstborn, the firstborn the, uh, amongst the livestock. So if you have a firstborn, that goes to the coffers of the temple, whether you like it or not. What if someone pledges the value of a condemned man, someone who did a crime, a capital crime, and is going to be executed, and someone pledges the value of that person, that is nothing. There's no need to redeem that because that person is put to death. We read about the laws of Miser Shani. Miser is the tithing. This is the second tithing. It's not a donation. Instead, someone needs to take those produce, uh, the grain, the wine, the oil and bring it to Jerusalem, eat in Jerusalem, but they could redeem it. So when someone has a field, they have to give uh, 10%, they have to tithe. 10% goes to the Levite. A second 10%, they themselves eat it, but they have to eat it in Jerusalem. And if they want to redeem it, i.e. transfer the produce to money and bring the money to Jerusalem and use that money in Jerusalem, then they have to add a fifth. And finally, we read about the laws of Miser for animals, which is every, Miser is Hebrew word for tithing, which is every tenth animal is given as a donation. And the way it works, Rashi tells us that you have all the animals in, in a pen and you let them out one at a time and you count and every tenth one, you take a red paintbrush and you strike it and that one belongs to the to the temple coffers. And it doesn't matter if it's a big one or a small one or a robust one. You can't play around with it. Don't distinguish between the good and the bad. Don't substitute n- not for good, not for bad. You have to just give every tenth one, whatever comes out, let it be random. And it's interesting, you know, that this is the format how it has to be done. You have all the animals in the pen, and then you let them out one at a time, and you strike every tenth one. Why do you do it in that fashion? So I saw two excellent explanations. Some suggest that, you know, the Torah wants to make it easier. You have livestock. You're working hard with them. And every tenth you have to give to charity. It's very difficult. So what do you do? You put all the animals in a huge pen. 
And you say, oh, look how many animals I have. Oh, I have so many animals. It's no big deal to give every tenth one to, to God. And similarly, we have to think of strategies, how to make mitzvahs easier for us. And if that, if that works, if looking at how much you have in aggregate, if it makes it easier for you to, to, to mobilize yourself to give charity, then, then, then do it like that. Perhaps a second understanding is that when someone puts all their animals into the pen and then you let them out one at a time and every tenth one of them you pledge to give to God. Of course, you have some animals that are big and strong and robust, very valuable. And then you have the weak, the frail, the feeble animals and you put them all in the pen and you don't know which one's going to come out every tenth. You can't calculate which one's going to come out every tenth. You have 100, 200, 500 animals. You just, every tenth one you give to God. So when you do that, in effect, because you're committing to give whichever one comes out tenth, you're going to give them to God and every tenth and twentieth and thirtieth and fortieth, then it's as if you committed already to pledge the healthy, robust ones. And therefore, even if a frail one comes out, you get the reward as if you gave a robust one because that's what you would have done if a healthy, robust one came out. And finally, the Parsha concludes, and indeed the book of Leviticus concludes, these are the commandments that Hashem commanded Moses to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, Chazak, Chazak, let us be strong, let us be strong, may we be strengthened. We are going to move on next week to the book of Numbers, to Sefer Bamidbar and Parshas Bamidbar. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I encourage everyone to share this podcast, the Parsha Podcast, with their friends and sample all the other podcasts that we offer here from Torch in Houston, Texas, the Jewish History Podcast, the Mitzvah Podcast, Eternal Ethics, Torah 101, This Jewish Life, and many more podcasts yet to come. I look forward to hearing from you, RabbiWolby at gmail.com.